You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Stocks are jumping and bond yields are slumping today. The S&P is back up at levels last seen in July. After Fed Chair Jay Powell said uncertainty over the economic outlook is unusually elevated and basically signaled Fed officials are done hiking. That's at least the way the market's reading it. Our market guest is still bullish, but also wary of the headwinds. And we got another one today. U.S. manufacturing shrinking and by more than expected. We'll look at this tug of war in stocks between weak data and a dovish Fed. Plus, a stream dream team, two rivals reportedly bundling up. We'll tell you who, what it would mean for the rest of the landscape and for consumers. And a special three buys and a bail edition with Gina Sanchez. She brings three stocks she wants for Christmas and one lump of coal. Let's start with those market numbers, though. Dom Chu has the latest. Dom? They are near session highs right now, Kelly, to your point about the stock market jumping right now. Uh, If you look at the broader S&P 500, the bigger measure of the large cap market, we're at 45.96. At the highs of the session, we actually touched 4,600. And so up 32 points, we'll call it, is the high of the session so far, down 13 points roughly at the lows. So generally positive. The Dow Industrial is 36,237, up 285 points, three quarters of 1% gain. The Nasdaq Composite up one half of 1%, 73 points to the upside, 14,300. And just for uh, reference sake, the highs for the year that that Kelly mentioned back in July for the S&P 500, 4607. So we're literally within striking distance of that level. But again, 4818 was the record high, still a little ways away from that. Now, if you take a look at these sectors overall, banner month for the month of November for the stock market overall. But the three best performing sectors in the S&P 500 during that massive one month span, Real estate, no surprise, with falling interest rates. Technology catching a bit as well. And the financial sector, services, spider. Again, those three are the best performing sectors. If you take a look at the worst performing sector, it was maybe no surprise there. The near-term and medium-term downtrend in energy prices causing a one-month decline of roughly 1%. You know, we'll call it maybe about a percent or so, just about flat. So keep an eye on energy. And then the stock of the day right now is Pfizer on the drug side of things. This on headlines that we got earlier this morning that the company is halting uh, trials of one of its experimental weight loss treatments due to some adverse side effects from patients taking that particular drug. The news, as you can see, has really been a drag on Pfizer shares pretty much all day long, down about 4.5%, and over the course of the last year, down 43% as well. So keep an eye on those key sectors, of course, tech, financials, and real estate, the best performers last time around. We'll see what the Santa Claus rally, or lack thereof, provides in this narrative. Kel, I'll send these back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. Well, did Powell just kick off an early Santa Claus rally? His dovish tone signaling rate hikes could indeed be done, and today's weak manufacturing data not giving him a reason to change that. The market now sees a 59% chance of the first rate cut coming in March. But my next guest says if you're looking to get into this market, don't expect a straight line up from here. Joining me now is Mark Avalone, president of Potomac Wealth Advisors. Mark, it's good to have you. I don't know if you've had a chance to look through the, the Powell comments or the reaction to them, but they are off to the races with this. They are. And I think the investors are hearing what they want to hear because he gave a little bit of both. But I, I also read that he said, don't expect rate kite, rate hikes anytime soon. And I think after we had a Fed that was clearly uh, too accommodative for well over a decade to then have to fight with both hands very aggressively to bring inflation down and then to expect in just a few months later they reverse course. The only way we see them doing that 
is if we have really bad economic news. So that is not a good ingredient for investors either. Our base case is they don't move. We're level for longer. And that could continue a slow growth, which isn't always bad for stocks. Yeah, I mean, I think the the way to put this fairly is it's not Powell who's signaling rate cuts. It's the market going, we've watched this movie before and we know how, where, where it ha- we know what happens. We know how this plays out. I think there's typically seven months, is it, from the last hike to the first cut, something like that. So they're basically just saying, yeah, we're expecting that uh, the tone's going to shift materially in the next couple months. What I find interesting about that is the bullishness of investors and economists even, because you don't start cutting, uh, maybe in this case if inflation falls, but you really don't start cutting until the data gets a lot worse. That's right. And with a, a forward multiple at uh, between 19 and 20 right now, you need a lot of earnings growth to justify the future value that investors are bidding up for stocks. And yet in the same breath, we're saying we're bullish on stocks because rates are going to drop. The Fed is going to ease. I don't think you can have it both ways. I do think we're going to get a bit of a straddle. I think we're going to play it down the middle. I don't think we go into a deep recession which will prohibit the Fed from needing to lower rates. But I don't think it's going to be a robust game on that's going to justify an unabashed move up in stocks from an earnings expansion. Yeah, one thing that people will have to ponder for 2024 is is what to do on the bond side of this. We could show the 10-year, which isn't even as dramatic as, for instance, the two-year today. The two-year's dropped like a rock uh, just in the last six weeks or so. Um, how does that change, you think, the relative attraction of stocks or what people might be doing? With, maybe they still find these bond levels attractive if they're you know, better than what you'd normally get if the, in a slowing economy. Well, the drop in money market rates is going to be bullish for investable assets. That, that usually will be the case because investors need a place to go. I know I'm trying to wrestle a lot of money out of money markets and people are just still too skeptical. There's a big pile of money there. And when it does, it will be bullish for stocks. For balanced investors who do have that bond portion, they're going to be benefiting. They're going to look at mid or even high mid single digit returns. And against an uncertain backdrop in equities, if you're finding your true risk profile bonds, talking about high grade corporates, maybe even some treasuries, you get a tax break in there. But bonds can give balanced investors at least a, a, a fight to get to an overall market return. Whereas, as we saw in 2022, it got hit. I think looking backwards at the 60-40 is not the way to go. I think the bonds already took their beating. They're going to do a lot better going forward. Interesting. It also kind of makes me wonder about financials in particular, because that's kind of where this tug of war is is best embodied, I would say. I mean, if people are into the financials because they think they're going to get some um, you know, relief here from better financial, con- you know, I just see it as a slowing economy doesn't sound like a great formula for them either. But you, you like them here, don't you? Well, that's a great point. And it depends where we like them. I'm with you in that a slowing economy can hurt banks that are dependent on lending that may have a bit more commercial real estate exposure. And that's why we've soured on the regional banks. And our emphasis has been the past few months has been more on the money center banks, the broadly diversified banks, stronger balance sheets. And when you look at a bank like Bank of America that got really beaten down, I think it was down to 26 level just a few weeks ago, it was largely because their bond portfolios were devalued because we had that rate spike up. Uh, consistent with this rate plunge down, you can look at that chart and see what happens to a strong bank when they get better valuations of their embedded bond portfolios. So I think if people are selective, they can find 
good places to hide out in financials, and that's a good offset to the tech run-up that we've seen. Yeah, only down 6% now year-to-date. Quick final question. You and I are both talking about this slowdown, and maybe because ISM is ringing in our ears, but is it possible that a slowdown is avoided somehow, and that would change the nature of what we're of everything we just discussed? Well, anything's possible, but I, I don't know that we're going to have a, a you know a roaring year next year. There are some catalysts, though, for a potential strong economy. We're underestimating a huge election spend that could happen on the advertising side. We're we're looking at the infrastructure bill rolling out, the Chips Act, the Inflation Reduction Act with green energy projects. They're finally getting shovel ready. Money is starting to come out. That's going to support economic activity. Uh, technology is going to add efficiency. So you could paint a picture of optimism here. We don't think it's unbridled optimism and a straight run up. As I said, I think we chug forward. It's slow. It's choppy. And that could be a sweet spot. I don't think we should get too greedy wanting too much growth because the Fed, then the Fed stays in the game. Yeah, I think I just saw 422 on the 10-year maybe. So uh, really dramatic response to everything we've heard from Powell and maybe to that data today. Mark, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Good to be here. Mark Avalon with Potomac Wealth Advisors. Now take a look at shares of Paramount, which are jumping more than 8% today on a possible streaming deal with Apple. The Wall Street Journal reporting the entertainment giants are in talks about bundling their services to attract and retain subscribers. Is the bundle making a comeback? Let's ask Barton Crockett, senior analyst at Rosenblatt Securities, and our CNBC senior media and entertainment correspondent, Julia Borston. Great to have you both here. Julia, the, the details first. What exactly does this partnership reportedly look like? Well, I'll tell you, I got a no comment from both Apple as well as from Paramount. But I would say that this would make a lot of sense. The idea is that Paramount Plus would be bundled together with Apple TV Plus. And I would note that what there are sort of positive and negative things that could create this kind of partnership. On the negative side, both Paramount and Apple TV Plus have higher than average churn. That's how frequently people drop the service. Both both of those services have over 7% churn, whereas the average in October was 5.7%. So by bundling together, they could minimize reasons why people would think it would be okay to drop the service because they're getting more from the service. And then on the positive end, Paramount has seen a lot of upside from partnering with other companies. Paramount has partnered with Walmart Plus, with Delta. They have international deals with Sky um, in the UK and in Europe. So they see the opportunity in bundling. So there could be a lot of upside here from these two services teaming up. And Barden, if I'm not mistaken, you kind of read this differently than the market, which currently is excited for Paramount and kind of shrugging its shoulders for Apple. But do you see it potentially the other way around? Well, look, I I do think that um, we need to know what the terms are. So Apple has tons of leverage. Uh, Paramount has had partnerships. They have been um, um, certainly contributing to subgrowth, and the company speaks favorably about the economics. Um, You know, Apple's a different bird. um, So we'll see what they're able to negotiate with Apple. Um, you know, I, I do think in, in the kind of bigger picture, um, you know, it's very clear to me that over time, um, streaming needs to migrate towards these big tech platforms. And I thought uh, breakups and sales of libraries, sales of sports assets is, is the way that's going to happen. Certainly these partnerships, these kind of synthetic bundlings may be kind of a partial step. Um, but it's also not clear to me that, you know, if Apple's going in that direction, that Paramount would be the only participant. Right. Verizon, for instance, works with many. No, I like your your point. You said Apple probably does well in this tie-up. The question is whether Paramount will, and that goes back to you said, what is the price that they are ultimately getting? And you say the first media guy to sell out to a tech company will likely get the best deal. Why do you think that is? 
Well, I, I do think that um, there's a bit of musical chairs, right? So if you think about the big media companies, if you think the world is transitioning uh, in streaming towards the tech platforms, you know, there's not necessarily a partner for every media company. So, you know, the last guy to move might be in musical chairs land, kind of left without a seat. So mm. I do think that, that, you know, it's best to move to see where the future is going and move in that direction. I think the media companies have a hard time wrapping their minds around that. So I think we're stuck in this kind of um, interim period where people are trying to figure out the future. But I think, you know, with hindsight, we'll see it's moving towards tech. Um, you best embrace it. And I wonder, Julia, some of the rumors I hear have to do with NBC tying up with Warner Brothers, for instance, things like that, which doesn't answer the question of whether they would have either the size to compete with big tech or maybe just a more attractive product to sell to them ultimately. Well, look, there's been a lot of speculation about media consolidation and this question of whether Warner's Brothers, Warner Brothers Discovery or Paramount or CNBC's parent company Comcast might be involved in some M&A activity that could go in any number of ways. Um, but given the regulatory environment, a number of people, including Warner Discovery's David Zaslav, has said bundling up services makes a lot of sense. We saw Verizon offer Max alongside Netflix offer that bundle um, with the idea that people may be more inclined to, to hold on to that rather rather than churn out because they're not getting enough from one particular service. So I think a rebundling is probably inevitable. Um, and people are subscribing to so many services right now, you have to wonder which ones they're going to pick and then what happens to the smaller ones and how they get folded in to, to bolster, bolster the value of the others. Yeah, Barton, I, I sort of... I feel like to the big tech companies, you know, enjoy it, it. Just enjoy. People hated on the cable companies for so many years. If Apple and Google want to be the new face of that, you know, knock yourselves out. And that wouldn't that just give media companies deeper pockets to sell to? And in that context, what should we make of uh, Peltz's fight with Disney? Um, so I think that um, Peltz and Disney um, really um, is something where Disney is doing pretty well right now. I mean, I don't know that Peltz has. A lot of traction, you know. I think the the painting of him as a pearl mother, pearl mother proxy is effective, um, but that only works as long as Disney is performing. So if Disney has missteps, um, you know, I think we'll see other activists step up, and I think the pressure to break up will mount. And um, you know, and my belief is in the long term that that's what's going to happen. Um, but uh, you know, but for now, I think they're they're doing a good job pairing um, uh, pairing pelts. Uh, via Pearl Mother. If they break up, then where does Disney's streaming content ultimately rest? Well, I think that tech platforms. So I think the library, I think ESPN, the sports, um, and I think Disney Plus would be a great tab on an Apple TV, would be a great uh, tab on an Amazon Prime, um, you know, could be part of a Google. Um, it, you know, I think that's where things ultimately trend. I don't know that that happens today, tomorrow, may take a while for people to wrap their minds around it. But I think ultimately there's so many advantages, structural promotion, um, you know, favoring uh, your own service in terms of uh, the fees you have to pay, you know, internally, Apple doesn't have to pay itself a 30% fee. Exactly. Um, there's a lot of reasons why, you know, it should trend in that direction economically. All right. It's going to be an interesting year, I think. Well, they said that about 2023. Well, maybe it was in some ways. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you both. Barton Crockett and Julia Borston. We've got a market flash on Wendy's. Dom Chu with the story. What's happening, Dom? What's interesting about this, Kelly, is it has to do with Nelson Peltz and trying as well, in a way. According to Reuters, uh, citing sources, uh, they say that activist investor Blackwell's is planning to nominate board members to Wendy's board of directors. That's the reason why Wendy's shares have now moved towards their session highs, currently up roughly 4 percent. 
The reason why it ties into Tryon and Pelts is because the single largest shareholder within Wendy's is Nelson Peltz's Tryon with a 16% stake. So this kind of puts them at odds with another activist investor. And the reason why it ties even further is because earlier over the last couple of weeks, with regard to Disney and Tryon's campaign at Disney, Blackwell's, an activist investor, had come out with commentary in support of Disney CEO Bob Iger. So there's a brewing battle apparently developing between Tryon and Blackwell's. For now, it's about Wendy's, and that's the reason why the stock is up right now. But we'll keep an eye on this. Again, a Reuters report citing sources. We'll send things back over to you, Kelly. All right, Dom, thank you very much. Shares up 4%. Coming up, we're sticking with fast food, setting the table for restaurant week with McDonald's and Domino's investor days on deck. We'll tell you what Wall Street's expecting and what these companies could reveal about the strength of the consumer. Plus, my next guest says if you don't like the Stiber truck, go find yourself a Rivian. Why Tesla's EV competitor could end up being a big beneficiary from Musk's high-priced, bulletproof cyber beast. And as we head to break, here's a look at the major averages this week. The Dow, the big outperformer thanks to Salesforce earlier, while the Nasdaq is actually now turning positive since Monday. If it closes in the green for the week, that would make it a five-week winning streak. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. From firing metaphorical shots at ex-advertisers to shooting literal bullets at a cyber truck, it's been a big week for Elon Musk. The Tesla CEO's cyber truck delivery event went off with a bang in Austin last night, featuring everything from a second try at the infamous baseball lob to testing the car's bulletproof capabilities. And while Musk claims the event would be the biggest launch of anything by far on Earth this year, the street didn't necessarily agree. Shares were down 2% or so after the launch of Fractionally Lower today. My next guest is bullish on Tesla, though, although he warns the cyber truck isn't everyone's cup of tea, and Rivian's R1T could even benefit. Joining us now for more is Canaccord Genuity Analyst George Generikis. George, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Nice to see you, too. Thanks for having me on. What were your reactions to the, uh, to the launch last night? Look, um, the vehicle is sort of like the man behind it. It's polarizing, it's sort of an acquired taste, but it's hard to argue against its uh, genius and its performance. It's it's an awesome vehicle, and uh, the performance metrics were incredible. I mean, look, it beat a Porsche 911 off the line while actually carrying a Porsche 911. The turning radius, I haven't driven it, but I watched some reviews this morning are, were incredible. Um, so it's just a car that's probably going to change the landscape of our roads, but I can tell you that I really like it. Uh, Leanne, who works on our team, doesn't like it. Pino <laughs> likes it. My wife hates it. My kids are split. I have two daughters. One likes it. The other doesn't. So it's just like Elon Musk. I mean, some people really, really like it. And some people really, really don't like it, but it's hard to argue that it's an awesome car. I liked Musk's line that finally the future will now look like the future, because don't we all agree? Like, how did the future end up looking like a world of, you know, bland sedans or something? Anyway, putting all of that aside, like you said, of course, it's going to engender some who, who like it, some who hate it. But why do you think that Rivian could be kind of strangely a beneficiary of the Cybertruck launch? Look, we're big believers in electrification. And uh, I know that we've had some bumps recently with companies like GM and Ford pulling back on their plans. Maybe the auto market generally has been a little bit weaker on the high end and EVs for now are more expensive than traditional vehicles. But we think there's a revolution happening 
And it's very similar to happen with what happened with smartphones, you know, 10 to 15 years ago. And the companies that won those wars weren't the Nokias or Motorola's of the world. Those were the companies that were able to build new products from the ground up. That's Tesla and that's Rivian. Rivian has an incredibly compelling product that they've designed from the ground up. They take advantage of software that they've built at the vehicle control system level all the way up to your UI. And so for right. those interested in an electric pickup, now you have an amazing Cybertruck and you have an amazing R1T. Rivian is losing money, a significant amount of every R1T that it makes or sells, though, if I'm not mistaken. What are the economics with the Cybertruck? Uh, we don't know exactly yet. You know, over time, we suspect it'll also be gross margin positive, but like with any new vehicle, it probably lose money in the very, very beginning. Look, the, the advantage of the Cybertruck is it's being built at a similar facility to the Model Y, right? So they already have the building in place and a lot of the, the infrastructure. Over time, it'll we, we're guessing it'll reach profitability levels similar to what uh, the other Tesla vehicles have. Do you find it, the range a little disappointing? Yes. That's the one thing that was a little strange. I mean, they have something called a range extender, which is basically buying an extra battery that you can put in the back that you have to go back to the service center to put in place. So it's that was a little disappointing and, and odd. I and mean, we'll see. Maybe it's something that's very, very compelling. We just don't know enough about the details yet, but definitely a relative disappointment. Remind me, George, what's your price target for Tesla and Rivian if you have it? Sure. Our Rivian price target is, is $30 and for Tesla it's $267. All right. Shares are looking uh, right around that level. George, thanks for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. George Generikis with Canaccord Genuity. Still ahead, speaking of Austin, where Musk held his Cybertruck launch, the city saw a flood of billionaires and businesses moving there during the pandemic. But is that still the case? Jane Wells went down to Texas to find out for us. Jane? Hi, Kelly. I'm in Austin. And, you know, we're hearing a lot about return to office or RTO on earnings calls. Keeping Austin weird just took a weird twist. We'll have that story when we come back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Three years ago, during the height of the pandemic, we all watched as a slew of companies from Tesla to Oracle and HPE said they were moving their headquarters to Texas. Governor Greg Abbott called it a tidal wave at the time. And with those companies came lots of Californians. But it might not be a lasting trend. Jane Wells is in Austin, Texas, with a closer look. Jane? Well, I mean, Kelly, why wouldn't you move here? You got no state income taxes. You have a thriving tech scene, a cool hip vibe. Today we've got California weather, but could that be changing? Take a look at this. More people are still moving from California to Texas, but the gap is narrowing. Two years ago, 105,000 Californians moved east, while only 36,000 Texans moved west. But last year, 42,000 Texans moved to California, more than from any other state. Redfin says for the first time, it's seeing more people leave Austin than arrive, and home prices, which are high, have dipped a bit. Some of this is thought to be, you know, return to office mandates for people who came to Austin to work remotely. But what we don't know if this is a blip or the beginning of a trend. I think if we look at any town that has boomed over decades, you're going to see ups and downs in the economy. And we are in a sort of a plateau spot right now. And I think that's just the nature of growth. Companies go through that. Companies grow, they plateau, they might shrink a little, then they grow more. 
But beyond Texas, we are hearing more return to office mentions on earnings reports and analyst reports. Like Lyft, for example, look at this. A Goldman report last month predicted 14% upside to shares, highlighting things like the company's focus on innovation around themes such as return to office. And Kelly, you can see since that report and earnings came out, how Lyft shares have performed. Back to you. So the companies that moved to Texas have stayed, but the employees who might have moved there to work from home are, are the ones maybe being pulled back out? Well, it's interesting you should mention that about the companies. You talk about Elon Musk and Tesla. Yes, Tesla has moved here, SpaceX here. But Tesla's new engineering hub and AI center opened this year back in California. So that may be partly because of the talent base, the talent pool that's still there, which hasn't completely migrated here. What we don't know in the data, Kelly, is whether the people going from Texas to California, how many of them are returnees because of whatever reason they missed it or they have to go back to the office and how many may actually be Texans going there for new opportunities. That's not broken out. That's fascinating. Yeah, I always think about when we talk about San Francisco real estate values, at some point, will they get cheap enough that that land uh, that leasees start to say, hey, you know, we should we should look to move back in uh, return to to work. Also, Jane, many have said it's stalled out a little bit that where whatever percentage of the population we are at now, they don't think it's going to really climb much from here. Well, I don't I don't know about that. I mean, this is my office and I never left it. You know what I'm saying? I have a desk somewhere in Universal City that I haven't seen since March 13th, 2020. But it is showing up with analysts in a lot of ways. We've got a couple of quick examples. B of A, for example, which is saying that uh, it upgraded EA to a buy. But it does think that if you look at it there, that it may have some trouble with gamers' uh, budgets that they go back to the office because maybe they don't have as much in money. On the other side, Goldman reports that Clear thinks it can get 7 to $9 per worker because it believes it has an identity platform that will be able to work as people return to the office. Again, the sell side analysts are always looking for trends. Who knows? But I find that sort of thing interesting to watch. Yeah, absolutely, especially if the labor market weakens further. I'll be very curious about that. Jane, for now, thank you very much. Our roving correspondent, Jane Wells. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. The Israeli military says it is taking new steps to minimize civilian deaths as it resumes fighting in Gaza after a temporary truce with Hamas fell apart. The IDF shared a map of the territory that is divided into zones that it says will help residents determine whether they need to move somewhere else for their safety. The military is already urging residents in parts of southern Gaza to evacuate. An Illinois appeals court denied actor Jesse Smollett's request to toss his conviction on his disorderly conduct uh, case today. The Empire star was found guilty on the uh, felony counts in 2021 for paying two men to stage a racist and homophobic attack on him in Chicago. He was sentenced to 150 days in jail, but he's only served six days as he waited decision on his appeal. A rare book from Jane Austen's library is about to go up for auction. The copy of Curiosities of Literature is expected to fetch between $100,000 and $150,000 in the bidding. It starts uh, December 8th. The book features her signature on the title page as well as underlinings and annotations made by the legendary British author. Nice Christmas present, Kelly. Yeah, I always felt like I should be a bigger fan of hers, and I've never actually read that. Maybe 2024 is the year. Maybe it's the year. I don't know. All right. Tyler, see you see soon. You. Thank you, Tyler Matheson. 
Coming up, is Domino's the next AI play? Wall Street is watching for its next tech innovation, and we might get some clues at Investor Day next week. Details next with the stock coming off its first positive month in three. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. Domino's and McDonald's are holding investor days next week, where we'll hear the company's outlook for 2024 and their key strategies to grow business. My next guest says Domino's will likely focus on third-party delivery, loyalty, and tech, while McDonald's will focus on store growth and corporate structure. In either case, he sees upside of 10% for both stocks, rates him as a buy. Brian Harbour is here. He's a restaurant analyst at Morgan Stanley. And Brian, it's good to see you. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me. I have some giant chicken nuggets over my shoulder uh, as as we discuss this, but it's going to be all about uh, McDonald's and Domino's next week. Um, by the way, do you cover Wendy's, given what just happened there with what uh, there, there might be an activist shakeup? We do cover Wendy's. Yeah, I mean, you know, fundamentally, I think we've been a little bit more cautious on Wendy's relative to McDonald's, for example. I think when McDonald's is performing very well, it does, you know, kind of squeeze some of the competitors like Wendy's. You know, I'm not sure kind of how that whole activist situation shakes out at this point, to be honest. No, and, and not, nor does anyone else, I think. But it's interesting yeah. you said McDonald's is performing quite well right now. Uh, what are the numbers that back that up and, and why is that? Well, if you look simply at their same-store sales growth in the U.S., for example, as well as outside the U.S., it's been double digits recently. It's been incredibly strong, and they they had previously um, delivered positive traffic growth in the earliest early part of this year. I think what's really working for them is they've had an incredible marketing calendar. They've done a lot of collaborations, and it's not just one time. These have been successful repeatedly, and it's been very impressive just how they performed coming out of the pandemic, really on a sales basis. Um, I, we've been quite impressed by that. Is it price? Is it traffic? It's both, and it is, it's more pricing. You're seeing that start to come down, but for much of this year, they did have traffic growth, and a lot of their peers were seeing traffic declines, so it has been the case that they've been taking share from a lot of the industry so far. I've read, and, and maybe the changes have already come through, that they've been trying to do a lot with their burger to make it more tasty. What do you think is driving this uh, outperformance relative to the rest of the space? Yeah, that that better burger design is is being rolled out globally at the moment. There's still more to come there. So the reality is, I think that's a pretty attractive driver as you go into next year. People's standards are higher today, and McDonald's is trying to meet that as well. So I, I think that's kind of a multi-year driver that we're just in the midst of, of rolling out. But like I said, they've done some very impressive things like the Grimace Shake for example. A lot of these things have been viral hits, and it, it's not just one thing. They've been doing this for several years, so there's some replicability to this, I think. Yeah, if they can get it right, you know, get Gen Z on TikTok talking about the Grimace Shake or what have you. Uh, are they into the, the influencers? Are they into Domino's? I mean, that stock obviously was the stock of last decade. It's been a little bit rockier since. The, the main issue for Domino's, I think, has been that pizza was so heavily consumed early in the pandemic. Everyone was ordering delivery pizza. And then you've had a couple of years where that's really normalized. And it's been a lot tougher for, for Domino's to as that wave has, has come off. So they're really trying to reverse the narrative as you go into to next year. They're trying to drive delivery sales growth, which delivery has frankly been declining for the last two years. So, you know, this analyst day next week will be very much about how do we start to tackle that opportunity and get, and get people to come back to delivery pizza. Domino's also used to be masterful at using technology to kind of um, honestly drive performance and certainly drive this halo effect around what the company, you know, is a technology company that delivers pizza or whatever they used to yeah. say. So is there an AI angle here that is legit or is this going to be more about the nuts and bolts of the business? There is somewhat of an AI angle. There's a lot of other things going on here here as well, right? But I think 
to, to be candid, they probably lost some of their technology edge over the last few years. The reality is other companies simply caught up and they really invested in their tech offering. So Domino's is in a position where it's trying to reestablish that that dominance, and that will take some time. But for example, they, they now have a partnership with Microsoft to put some AI initiatives in place. This is still a pizza company at the end of the day, right? But how do you employ AI to improve sales? And you can do that through you know the customer-facing app uh, to make it easier for customers to interact. And then on the back end, it's something that helps you operate stores better. So how do you use AI for inventory management, labor management? You can help manage delivery orders. They already do some of that but I think there's a lot more you can do there, which should make it easier to operate these stores. It makes it, you can deliver faster. All of those things could be good for them. Yeah, if I'm trying to think through their innovation milestones, you know, the box itself, the way to keep the pizza hot, then you had the pizza tracker. That feels like the play from 10 or 15 years ago. And it'll be interesting to see what, you know, I don't know what they would come up with now that could really be tech, so tech savvy. I don't know what that would look like. Well, like I said, some of those backend things you're not necessarily going to see, but for example, you're starting to see be able to order from a chatbot at a lot of restaurants, or there's drive-throughs that are fully automated. You're not actually ordering from a human; you're ordering from a robot. You're going to see a lot more of that. I think the reality is, over the next three to five years, we may mostly be ordering from from robots at a lot of fast food restaurants. True, for better or or, or maybe for worse. Uh, yeah. Finally, we mentioned about ten percent upside for these names for you. Is there one in the space you're more bullish on? Uh, Domino's is one that we've really liked. I think there will be a good growth story next year. We've also liked Yum Brands, I think. Yum Brands is probably the most internationally diversified of the names we cover. Very good international unit growth story there. I think China has been tougher. They're very exposed to China. But if you have more of a recovery next year, that should be good for Yum Brands. Taco Bell uh, is performing incredibly well in the U.S., and it's a very value-oriented brand. So I think that sets up very well in uh, in 2024 as well. So we have, we've liked Yum as well. All right, we will leave it there. Brian, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Looking forward to Restaurant Week, as we're calling. It should get a lot of news on that front. Coming up, this name could be included in the S&P rebalancing after the bell. What it could mean for shares after prices have already more than doubled in the past year. If you think you know the mystery chart, Tweet me or send me your messages on X at Kelly CNBC. I just changed my profile picture, too. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. The S&P 500 is set to rebalance after the bell today. And Uber is on the list of names that could be added. It's the largest U.S. company not in the index yet, and it was the mystery chart we just teased. Deirdre Bosa has more in today's Tech Check. Deirdre, I guess we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure, but there's been speculation for months, and today could be the day because, as you said, at the close, market close today, that is when the S&P does its rebalancing. And of all the candidates, Uber is the largest by market cap. It's at almost $120 billion now. First, let's talk about how it got here. Uber had to become profitable, and I'm not talking on a unit economic basis or on an adjusted EBITDA basis. I'm talking gap net income. Uber has shown that its gap income profitability is actually sustainable. You have to show four quarters of that to be considered for inclusion. So that has happened. Now, what does it mean going forward if Uber does get included tonight? Well, it means that apart from being an important milestone um, that they can kind of trot out there, it means that they would be included um, in some portfolios, funds portfolios that track ETFs or the S&P index. And it could also mean more institutional investment from those investors that want to create a fund that tracks the S&P. Um, so Kelly, how it got here as well is such an interesting story. You showed that mystery chart before the break. It has been sort of a long 
slow trudge upwards. Well, slow until this year, actually. It really shot off this year. But remember, Uber went public at $45 back in 2019, and it did a whole lot of nothing for a few years. But this has been the year that it's really separated itself, especially from its now much, much, much smaller competitor, Lyft. Yeah, anything Lyft can do at this point, Deirdre? To close that? I mean, it, I mean, sell itself? I don't know. <laughs> I spend quite a bit of time thinking about that. What is going to happen to Lyft? They've got sort of a new CEO in there, David Risher, who came in this year. And, you know, I hear different things. Maybe it's just going to be a smaller regional player and it'll kind of go along. It's important that Uber has a number two in the first place for things like regulation and to be seen as, you know, anti-monopoly. But could it be acquired by a company? That's always been a question surrounding Lyft as well. Who would buy it? I'm not sure. Um, maybe a Google or a GM or something that's building their own sort of robo-taxi fleet could use a Lyft. But even that, people I talk to, investors, insiders, don't think that that's all that plausible. So maybe it trudges along. But yeah. you can see in this chart here where that separation really happened. Those two stocks used to trade pretty much in lockstep. Not at all anymore. Could be a banner week for Uber if they get the London black cabs, which I thought was maybe the most telling thing yeah, to ever point. happen. Uh, and then also in the S&P. We'll see. Deirdre, thank I'm you. I'm so with you. It, uh, that, was a, that was a huge one. It was a huge one. I mean, it, it says everything you need to know about Uber, right? Yeah. It's fiercest detractor has now become its partner. Exactly. I mean, everything old is new again. Exactly. A fitting end, uh, perhaps, to that whole saga. Deirdre, thank you. Our Deirdre Bosa, we appreciate it. Still ahead, Christmas just a little more than three weeks away. We'll get the three names on our trader's wish list this season and the one she's not wanting in her stocking. That's next. Welcome back. Take a look at the action in crude oil, which is now taking a leg lower after the Department of Energy says it's speeding up the return of 4 million barrels of crude to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. They're speeding it up to February from the summer of 2024. The DOE went on to say they could also seek to buy up to 3 million more barrels for that February delivery. Crude prices had actually been up on the session, but they are now down almost 2% as people interpret this as a bearish development. Uh, again, we're just under $75 a barrel. Now, it's Friday. And that means it's time for three buys in a bail. And it's December, so that means unnecessary holiday themes. Lido Advisors Chief Market Strategist Gina Sanchez is here to give us the three stocks she wants for Christmas and the one lump of coal she wants to avoid. Gina, welcome. Let's start with Amazon. Yeah. It's coming off a strong November. They saw those record-breaking sales over Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and the announcement of Q, the AI chatbot for business. Why do you want this gift for Christmas? Look, Amazon has continued to um, put one foot in front of the other. There was also some concern that there might be a slowdown of AWS sales, but that looks like it's stabilized. And in fact, it could be hitting an inflection point, meaning that that will continue to add to already growing advertising numbers. And like you said, that retail sales and Amazon is the go to when purses get tight, when households get tight. Uh, people are no longer going to Walmart. They're going to Amazon. And I think this is probably going to be, uh, you know, a trade that will continue to go through the holidays. Already up 74 percent year to date. So you're, you are sticking with it. The next name, not one I would expect to see on your list. It's Roblox mm -hmm. making up a ton of lost ground. It's up 58 percent off its 52 week low from back in September. Uh, they're expanding advertising and e-commerce management says it's uniquely positioned to capitalize on A.I. Why does this one make your wish list? 
So this one's an interesting one. I agree this normally, you know, isn't one of my top picks because it's still not a profitable company. However, they are back to near their IPO price. And if you look at what they're doing in terms of expanding um, their offerings, they do look like one of the few companies that actually has a pretty strong outlook going into 2024, which is a time when a lot of companies are starting to to guide down. Um, So, you know, this is one that is 15 years in the making. It doesn't look like they're going to be profitable anytime soon, but it does look like they are making up um, quite a bit of lost ground. All right. I think you just have Holiday on the brain because your next one, too, Mattel, which is positive for the year, (laughs) but less so after giving that guidance city called conservative. They're saying the toy maker has gained 60 basis points of market share year to date amid the smash hit Barbie movie. And there's a Hot Wheels movie coming down the track, apparently. So you want this for Christmas. Yes. In fact, I want a CNBC contributor Barbie complete with laptop and podcaster. Why don't we have one already? That's the question. That is the question. Um, but, But seriously, I do think that they were overly conservative. And if you look at sort of the effect that Barbie had on Halloween, it was the go-to costume. I think it is going to be the go-to gift for the holidays. And if there's one segment, age population that you don't, you know, skimp on at Christmas time, it's the children. Uh, And so I do think that there is, you know, more than than meets the eye here. And I think they are being overly conservative. And this talk was really hit because of that. All right. I'm looking forward to that Hot Wheels movie, potentially, uh, myself. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to your lump of coal. You don't want to see, if you see Etsy in your stocking, you are running. Uh, They've been down 34% so far this year. Canaccord is still bullish on high-margin international sales, but they've warned the environment remains highly promotional. This one is one you want to avoid? You know, I think I do, because if you look, if your choices are Etsy versus Amazon, you just just get more bang for your buck on Amazon. Um, And so while the company may have segments of high margin, you know, it's just the the outlook is not as good. Um, The valuation on a comparative basis is not that good. You know, Etsy is trading 20 times forward earnings. Amazon is trading 32 times forward earnings. But Amazon is just a much bigger company and better value for that 32 times. Although the stock's up 7% on that earnings beat today. True, true. But this is just one that, that you know, we're avoiding. All right. And into 2024, do you want the S&P in, under the tree or, or, or no? What, 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 you, you, know, you pick any asset in the universe. <laughs> oh, so, you know, I, I think the challenge in 2024 is that a lot of the bad news that we thought at the beginning of the year we thought would hit around this time has been pushed off to 2024. And in fact, the retail outlook, if you think 2023 holiday season is going to be um, challenging, 2024 is expected to just continue to be a slog. Um, and so, you know, I think that we are probably going to continue. And and the other thing is that the Fed just came out today basically saying don't expect us to to uh, to to you know ease anytime soon, and if that's the case, then that higher for longer trade isn't a great outlook for 2024. So I think that you end up just sort of bumping along. 2024 could be sort of a lost year for the S and P. Interesting. You might be the first to call it. Gina, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Gina Sanchez with Lido Advisors. That does it for the Exchange. You've been listening to the Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.